You're listening to the Live Well Radio Podcast Show. A wealth of information for a life of inspiration. And here's your host, Brett Coleman. Hey guys, today's episode of Live Well Radio is truly amazing. Today is Ask the Therapist Thursday. And I have the great pleasure of sitting down here with Dr. of Physical Therapy and Clinical Director, Dr. Mike Beebe, here at Anthem Arizona's ORSR Physical Therapy. Hey, Mike, how you doing, buddy? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. The topic today, I think, is going to help a lot of people who may be in a situation of either hip replacement, mm-hmm. going to into re- hip replacement, or coming out of hip replacement, or trying to prevent hip replacement. So we want to cover those, top, those three topics here in the short amount of time we have. So how do you want to start this off as far as pre-preventative? Or I'm sorry, pre-op. Let's say, that, let's say they are getting ready for the hip replacement. Well, I, th- I think what we're trying to accomplish as physical therapists is there's a, a component there, an educational component that we're trying to uh, be better at in terms of letting people know that they can come to their physical therapist as a uh, frontline provider if they have questions as to whether or not they may have a problem in their hip. Okay. And the problem, we were talking a little bit earlier before the show started, the problem could very well be genetic. Uh, it, it could be. There is actually a hereditary component to osteoarthritis or that degenerative bone arthritis in the hip or any other joint in the body. So are there ways to tell if you're predisposed to it? Outside of just asking your family members or having been around your family members and they've either been diagnosed with it or have gone through some type of treatment or therapy or potentially joint replacement surgery. Outside of that, probably not. There are of course, ways to uh, go about imaging the hip, either with just basic x-rays or more advanced imaging, uh, such as MRI or CT scan. Signs? Symptoms? Signs and symptoms can vary, but uh, there are a lot of commonalities there. General pain in the hip, uh, mostly towards the groin. Pain or tenderness uh, along where the that separation or that line between the hip and the groin. Somebody's talking about not being able to squat not being able to bring their knee to their chest, not being able to rotate their hip inward or outward as much as they possibly used to. Those are probably some of the big cardinal signs that we see uh, clinically. So can anybody get out of it? Or is surgery definite? No, not necessarily. I, I think there's always a, a symptom severity there that uh, some people are willing to endure a little bit more pain than others or a little bit more disability than others. Certainly managing body weight is one of them, although that's not an end-all be-all for folks. Staying physically active, we do know how the cartilage on the ends of the bones react to exercise or lack thereof. So remaining moderately fit and active is certainly helpful for people as well as uh, maintaining good flexibility and maintaining good strength, especially functional strength. Things like sitting to standing, things like rolling over in bed. For a lot of people, that's, that's important. What's happening in the hip most of the time? I know that it's a kind of a general question, but most of the time in your experience, and you've been doing this for how long now? Uh, this was my 20th year starting in May. So you have to see a common thread of what's happening inside the body of the hip that's causing this pain. The, the biggest thing that's happening is the cartilage that's on the end of the bone. And the thigh bone is otherwise known as the femur. The head of the femur or the thigh bone 
is three quarters spherical. So it looks like most of a baseball and it is curved like that. But on the end of that bone is articular cartilage and it's thicker in some areas than in others, depending on how much weight is being put on those. But what ends up happening is that articular cartilage is breaking down either over time or it can break down in instances of trauma. And then the bone that's underneath that cartilage is now exposed to other surfaces that it's coming in contact with. And it's very painful. So the surgeon is going to go in there most of the time and clean it up, replace it? In the case of a hip that's, uh, that really can't be salvaged in terms of some of these other lesser invasive surgeries, and, and there's many, a total hip replacement, they go in and they take the head of the femur off and they replace it with a metal component. Stainless steel ball. Yeah, some type of alloy. Um, and then they will go into the socket portion, for lack of a better term, and they will replace that with a metal cup and a plastic spacer that serves as kind of a pseudo cartilage uh, for that joint interface. And that's where you have a total hip replacement. Would that be the cushion then? The, well, the, the cartilage doesn't create cushioning as you and I would probably think about that, but it creates the appropriate spacing for the joint. It does allow for loading of that joint and mobility in that joint to a certain extent and also helps deepen and widen the socket like our normal socket would be to promote that stability or maintain that stability. Is there a certain age? You've seen it later in life? When we, t- when we talk about early diagnosis, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of criteria that we use. One of the common ones is folks with hip pain or groin pain over the age of 50. Now, I think we've all probably met somebody or have, and I've certainly come in contact with a lot of people who have had hip replacement prior to age 50 or folks that can go a decade, two or three beyond that before they have a hip replacement. Gotcha. But that's kind of the, that's one of the criteria that they're looking at. And then as far as your, your facility here, the physical therapy facility, is it a stop before surgery? Or my question is, if they can come here and get a nice treatment, is there a way to avoid surgery or prolong it as much as possible? Is that your, is that your goal in the beginning? They don't need surgery right away. There's, like you said, it can go a decade with maybe like a decade, prolong it. Is it more of a tolerance factor? How much per- pain that person can tolerate before they have to get replaced? Well, that's a big part of it. That and they lose their mobility over time or they lose their function over time or they've now limited in their recreational pursuits. Maybe they can't play golf and they're a retiree and that's one of their main forms of recreation. There may be some of that. But as a, as a physical therapist, I think what we're looking at is from a treatable standpoint, do, the, do these folks have treatable problems? Right. Can that person be seen and be seen as a, as a first-line provider in the physical therapy office? Or is it something that they should be treated for while they're being referred out, potentially for a medical diagnosis or imaging? Or does that person need an emergent referral? I suppose there are probably times where somebody is coming in with hip pain that may need an emergent referral. Uh, immediately to an emergency department or fast med or an urgent care or immediate care situation. But what we're looking for is, does that person have treatable problems that can safely be managed in the clinic uh, from a frontline provider standpoint? And then when they come to you, you assess them and exercise, stretching. What's, what's the first step of preventive maintenance to try to prolong that person having to go under the knife? They don't have, if they don't have to go, if it's not an emergency situation. Giving them a, a good subjective interview is, is probably the first step, finding out what their complaints are, 
is it a situation where they have pain or lack of function or lack of mobility? And, and having a good physical exam, testing the opposite side, looking not only above the hip, so somewhere in the spine or the pelvis, or also assessing their knee to make sure that their symptoms aren't necessarily coming from their knee or coming from their spine. And then creating a, a good, accurate physical therapy functional diagnosis uh, for those folks, and then creating a plan of care. You just said something pretty interesting that got my attention. You said knee, back, and hip. Are they all connected somehow as far as the, the cause? Potentially they can be. There, there are plenty of structures in the spine. There's plenty of structures in the pelvis that can refer, or uh, what we describe as a referred pain, mm-hmm. to the hip. Certainly anybody that's had sciatica, they may describe their, their pain as being in their hip and they come in and they're holding their hip. And that may be a situation where they've got something that's probably more based in their spine, potentially, or in their pelvis. And it's not unheard of to have a knee problem that can refer backwards or up the body towards the hip. Although I think we find that that's probably a little less often. So what can somebody expect after they've gone through the surgery? What can they expect as far as post-treatment? A lot of it is, is surgeon-driven, a lot of it is, is protocol-driven, and I don't, I don't mean to, that to sound a, a bad way, but the surgeons that are doing these operations, they have an idea of what they want for their patients in a post-operative setting. Depending on what they've seen inside that hip, they may have an idea of what they want uh, accomplished in the therapy setting. Some patients will go directly home from surgery, and some of these surgeries are done now on an outpatient basis. They're not even staying the night in the hospital. Not even one night. Not even one night. The progression early in my therapy career 20 years ago was three to five nights in the hospital. Now they're going home same day. Now some of those folks, they have probably a better support system at home. Maybe they have a spouse that's available to take them to their appointments or to drive them to therapy. And so they can end up in the physical therapy office pretty quickly. Some patients end up in a rehab hospital uh, or a an acute care or some other type of facility for a few days, up to a week, potentially two, if they don't have that support system at home. And then home health physical therapy is an option for some of those patients that go home. They may need to see a home health physical therapist for anywhere from two to six visits in their home before they end up in the outpatient therapy setting. Cool. And so has the procedure become less invasive? I don't know if it's necessarily become less invasive because you're still invading the body and, and you're still having to remove structures from the hip and replace them with uh, metal components. But I think the surgeons are, I think they're, they're more skillful every year. They're getting better at what they're doing. The aftercare is certainly better. The approaches to the hip it used to be that a lot of them were coming in posteriorly or through the back behind the hip in the, in the buttock area. And now there's been a a movement where a lot of the surgeries are done anteriorly or in the front of the hip. And even now there's a, and it's, it's not new necessarily, but Dr. Chow, who's here locally is doing the super path hip, which is on the side of the hip, a little bit above the hip where they don't even have to dislocate the hip in order to replace the components. So it's fascinating. There's always advances there. So from an invasive standpoint, they're still invading your body. You're still having to undergo anesthesia or a spinal block, depending on how they're, they're doing that. But I think overall, we're probably just all better at what we do from a medicine standpoint, uh, from a physical therapy standpoint, an aftercare standpoint. Right. So in your 20 years, are you seeing people getting, getting back to where they were? Full recovery, full hip movement, 
going back on the golf course, hitting 18 holes and, and, and not having any type of limitations? Well, that's a good question because there's always going to be some limitation there because the components that they're putting in there don't act quite the same as what we were born with. However, some of those limitations are at, at, a, at a far enough extreme that, that there's a lot of people may not take their new hip into that range of motion anyway, which is fine because people can be fully functional with less mobility than they had previously. But the thing is, they don't have any pain anymore. Those bony, painful spots, those have been removed. So people don't have that pain anymore. But people are going back to golf. They're going back to other activities. Some are recommended. I think some are not necessarily recommended. I don't think I would want somebody to, to water ski or snow ski in, in certain conditions. And, and, and that, that's certainly not an exhaustive list, but there's probably a lot of things that we tell people to avoid that could potentially injure that joint replacement. We, we want it to stay in its place once it's in there. Yeah. So they're basically, they're sacrificing maybe a little mobility for less or no pain. And, and yes, the, the, the short answer to that is yes, but the hip is already less mobile. It's similar to the shoulder in its, in its anatomy. And yes, it is less mobile, but it is a highly stable joint to begin with, whereas the shoulder is just the opposite of that. It's highly mobile, but it's inherently unstable. So the hip is really stable to begin with already. The big thing is they're not having any pain anymore. So when they go to do certain activities and they're not having that pain, they're more likely to engage in physical activity that maybe they weren't doing before. Is it more common or uncommon if one hip's replaced, the next one's bound to be, have to be re- replaced? I don't think there's probably any reason to think that you would have to have the other one necessarily, depending on what was the cause or what was the reason why one hip was degenerated earlier than the other hip. Certainly there are people that have had both of their hips replaced. My own, I've heard of that. My own father's had both of his hips replaced. Has he? Um, there are plenty of people that have come into this office and in and, and our other locations and, and probably nationwide that have had both of their hips, but there's no reason why anybody would say, oh, you've had one, you're guaranteed to have the other one somewhere down the line. Is it usually the same cause, hip to hip? If, if we looked at it, we, we would probably find some parallels as to why maybe that person was a, an athlete, uh, uh, maybe a contact or a collision sport athlete, or maybe they were active runners for years and years, those kinds of things. So we could probably tie it to some of those things, but I don't know if we would necessarily make assumptions uh, to that. And how likely is somebody once they have that hip replaced, should they be pretty mindful of it being more sensitive to it breaking? Or you said something earlier about re-injuring the hip. Is it more susceptible after it's been replaced to be re-injured? No, not necessarily. Some of the different approaches, and we talked a little bit about that earlier, was some of the approaches to the hip replacement, specifically a, a posterior approach. We do have certain precautions that we are concerned about in terms of bringing the knee towards the chest, bringing the knee across the midline or rotating the hip inward. Those are some of the big ones that we look at and we remind patients not to violate those. Now, over time, there are, I'm sure, plenty of surgeons that would tell that patient, hey, look, you know, it's been a couple of years down the line. You're probably safe to do those motions again. Maybe don't do them in combination, but the anterior approach doesn't have those same precautions and the superpath hip doesn't have those precautions either. We just want to maintain the stability in that joint, make sure that that person doesn't have some type of traumatic accident that could potentially be avoidable to, to, to maintain that hip. Yeah. And I've talked to people in the last 
13 years because we do this, our, you know, our cooking show and I get to talking with some people in our audience where I see the scar on the knee and they said, I've had both knees replaced. And some will even say, this one's been replaced twice. That's a knee replacement. Now, is it similar to the hip? Can a hip have to be replaced down the road? I guess, what's the lifespan of a new hip? Lifespan of a new hip is actually really pretty good. Is it? Is that, has that changed over the years? It's it's strange. It's uh, changed drastically over the years. I think some of those early joint replacements in the 80s and some in the 90s, uh, they were getting maybe 10 years out of that okay. joint just because of the materials or uh, how they were placed or how they were either cemented or not cemented. And it also just depends on the person, whether or not it's, they're going to end up with loosening of the components, which is very rare, but you just never know. When, and we describe that as a revision. So if you have a hip replacement or a knee replacement, and it has to be redone. That's described as a revision. And there may be trauma causes to that, whether or not that has to be revised. Some people may get an infection, which again is also rare, but my dad's had three revisions on, on the one hip. So he had four surgeries on one hip and he had a replacement on the other hip. And, and it's just because of component placement and just things didn't, didn't go that well. But, but overall, the lifespan, the, the reason why the lifespan is so much better is the materials are better now. Uh, the surgeries are better, the aftercare is better, and we're not seeing physical activity um, staying that same level. So let's just, for example, take a 50-year-old male who was active his whole life, maybe played a collision sport, had to have a hip replacement from 50 to 60 to 70 to 80. Activity levels do tend to decline. So you're not placing the stresses and the wear on those new joint components where you would expect potentially that would wear that joint out prematurely. I would probably hazard a guess at probably 20 years. Um, there's a lot of people that their, their, their new joint outlives them. Does it? Yeah. You, were, I mean, you and I were talking before we started the show, and I, you said something very interesting, and that is, I didn't realize this, there's both ends of the spectrum, people who are sedentary, not active, and people who are very, very active, both are high risk for having, uh, what would you call it, injury or, or candidates for hip replacements. Yes, and, and, and it's good that you bring that up because there was an article in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sport Rehab, and, and, it, and it's actually a fairly new article. It's uh, just this year. They talk about the association of recreational and competitive running and having the effects of knee and hip osteoarthritis. And what they found is that the folks that were sedentary and the folks that were probably chronic over-exercisers, they tend to develop osteoarthritis more quickly and to a greater extent than those folks that engage in moderate activity and specifically for runners. This article was related to runners. Runners. So again, moderation. Right. And I know we joked a little bit about that, all things in moderation. Right. Even moderation. Even moderation. But it, and, and again, this is just a research report and, and we won't get into the details of it, but if they're making that finding, they're making that assumption that moderate exercise is probably really, really good for your joint health. There's a couple who would just raise their can of beer and said, yeah, I'm taking the day off today from the gym. I saw you guys out there. Don't think I didn't see that. Can you refer them to that article where we got that information if they want to look more into that? It's the uh, Journal of Orthopedic and Sport Physical Therapy, and it's, uh, the title is The Association of Recreational and Competitive Running, specifically to hip and knee osteoarthritis. And I'm looking at that, and it's a, no, so this was very recent. This is June 2018. This is a brand new article. If you want to send me that link, and what I'll do is I'll include it with this podcast. And when you send this podcast out, in, uh, we'll include that link to that website. Sure. And what makes this article, I, th I think, really good, and, and most people can agree, is that it was, a, it was a systematic review and a meta-analysis. And what they mean by that is they've taken 
multiple articles and they've determined which ones are the best ones. Uh, the power of the study, the number of people in the study, and the findings that came out, and especially the, the statistics. How powerful are the statistics in order to make these conclusions? So uh, myself as a professional, when I, when I read an article like this, I think, okay, this is done well, yeah. and this is a compilation. Of the best. And they've, they've parceled out all of the best material right. to make that conclusion. Which is pretty strong. It is very strong. I like that. I want to ask you, see, before, before we bring this interview in for a landing, I, I mean, we talked a lot about the pre-op and post-op. How about uh, we touch on preventative? For the person who might not be quite there is getting, uh, be a candidate for hip surgery. I know we cut back on maybe running. Shoes might have a lot to do with that as far as the impact it has on your hip. If you are an avid runner, can we lessen the chances of them causing injury to their hip by doing certain things, preventative maintenance? Oh, sure. There's probably plenty of things that people can do. And and, and, and I don't have a, a, an exhaustive list. No, no, let's touch about it, touch on it. But we, we do have these discussions with patients about maintaining an optimal body weight. Not that that in and of itself will prevent that situation. No. But maintaining a good optimal body weight, maintaining good functional strength, maintaining good functional length, so having good flexibility. Certainly avoiding overuse um, can be helpful as well. Regular visits to your orthopedist as needed, or if you think that you're having a problem, uh, certainly people come to my office and, and they're looking for what we call a first stop appointment, maybe just something they want to have checked out. There are activities out there that are obviously more higher impact than others. Uh, running is a fairly high impact. That's five to seven times our body weight every time our foot hits the ground. You're right. And if you're a 250 pound person, that's a lot. But even if you're a 100 pound person, that's still a lot for that body. So, of course, having good equipment. Uh, those folks that are runners maintaining good shoes, uh, certainly. I don't think there's really any surface that they could necessarily run on that's any better than others. Outdoor, indoor, treadmill, concrete. You know, a lot of times that's a preference thing, but you're still hitting with some force there. Some people will run on decomposed granite and they think, well, that's a softer surface or uh, the asphalt is softer than the concrete. It's really not. You're still pounding away on your joints. But also good cross training. There's no, there's nothing wrong with getting in the pool, performing deep water running in the pool with a with a belt with a flotation belt around your waist. I've seen therapy pools uh, for sale. Some of these big shows that we do, they have the person with the belt, like just what you're saying. Sure, therapy pool that people could put in their backyard. But if not at it, they don't have that accessibility. Maybe some of the gyms have a pool. Sure, or right down here where we live in in Anthem, the community center or the fitness centers in the country club. They've got areas there that are certainly deep water enough that you can simulate those kinds of things. I see. Maybe not running every day. Maybe not engaging in heavy weightlifting. You know, instead of four days a week, maybe it's three days a week or less just to help prolong that potentially for folks. There's a lot of things that can be done. And, and again, cross-training is just one of many. Plus, it adds variety. Uh, nobody wants to have the dreads when they go into the gym because maybe they've got more things that they can do. Maybe they've got mountain biking available to them or hiking Squaw Peak or yeah. you know, maybe one day they're going to swim or maybe just that day and take a walk instead of doing something else. Gotcha. Can arthritis be preventative? I, th I think it's, it's probably more related to some of the things that we do from a, from a habit standpoint or our activity or inactivity mm -hmm. is, is, is probably going to be beneficial. Those folks that end up with it or maybe they have it at an earlier age or maybe in multiple joints, there's probably a predisposition there that maybe couldn't be avoided. We, we, we talk about things that can be modified 
there are certain disease processes that can't be modified. You know, everybody can quit smoking, but not everybody can prevent having osteoarthritis if that's potentially in their future. Right. And exercise, I've read several studies saying exercise can keep it at bay for maybe longer than somebody who's not a regular exercising regularly. Absolutely. Our joints actually crave the compression and decompression of, of activity. That's how they maintain their the lubrication in the joint. That's how they maintain the health of their joint and how that cartilage that's on the ends of the bones maintains its cellular makeup and its stability. Talk to the person right now or the people right now who are listening to this. They work out regularly and they know they should be doing more stretching and they're not doing their stretching exercises. Coming from a professional like yourself, what would you tell them? The first thing I would probably tell them is don't feel too overly bad about it because you're not alone. You are in the massive majority of people who probably don't stretch enough. But then again, stretching is not the end all be all to those things. No. Uh, Strength training, uh, functional training, dynamic strength training, those kinds of things. I think if we break it all down and we let them know that it really isn't, doesn't have to be a chore, it doesn't have to be your life's work, that there are ways to be, to work on flexibility before an activity and then certainly flexibility after an activity. It really doesn't take up that much time, but I'm probably as guilty as anybody else. We're all short on time. We're all short on energy potentially after a heavy workout or playing two hours of basketball. And not too many people after their six hours on the ski slopes are going to lay down in the snow and stretch their quads uh, when, when they're done. So I don't want to, I don't want to point any fingers because it's four pointing back at you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm already having to point at myself a little bit, just like everybody is, but that's just one aspect of maintaining a good yeah. physical health and fitness. Gotcha. And then as far as the rooster comb, but I, I wanted to ask you about that earlier. What is that rooster comb as people, as an option uh, for having hip replacement? What is that all about? Uh, what you're talking about, what you're referring to specifically, and I'll give you the big fancy term for it, is called visco supplementation. Okay. And that's a fancy term for, well, people have given a lot of different names, including the gel shots, chicken shots, but it's a material that they will inject directly into the joint. And what it's, the idea behind it is you're trying to improve the, the lubrication in the joint. It can be done one time. The most popular is probably done three weeks in a row. And then there's also one that's done five weeks in a row. So you go to the orthopedist and you have an injection. I don't know how much they're doing it in the hip, but it's really, really popular in the knee. And, and there's some good results out there. So the idea is to, they're, they're introducing a, a material into the knee that is hydrophilic, and meaning it, it loves water and it wants to grab onto it and increase that lubrication in the joint in hopes that it will decrease somebody's symptoms, maybe improve their function and potentially prolong a joint replacement. But as far as how much they're doing it in the hips, I, I can't really say that I know, but they're doing it a lot in the knees. In the knees. So when we have you back, we'll talk more about that. Before we head out, though, you are a fan of uh, yoga for your patients that come and see you. Yoga, uh, you refer out to maybe some type of acupuncture sometimes, uh, stretching, yoga. What can they do in addition to what, after they leave here, after they leave your physical therapy office, if they want to do something outside of here to help alleviate that pain, would those options be available? Those are great options. And, and I think from a, you know, any, any good therapist is probably going to sit down with their patient when, they're, when their therapy is ending and, and, and make sure that those, that patient's goals are, are consistent with what we think that they may benefit from. Because I could suggest yoga to 10 different people, but if that's not really their thing or they're not interested, then now we're at a bit of an impasse. Sure. But again, 
also being a good therapist is having a wide range of ability to refer people either to acupuncture, yoga, a, a different practitioner, potentially a, a naturopath, if that's what they're looking for, maybe a personal trainer, chiropractics, osteopathic manipulative medicine, then the list is endless, is making sure that, that that person, what you're suggesting for that person matches up with not only their goals, but maybe how they feel about what they want to do or what they'd be uh, interested in doing. Open to. Open to, right. yeah. That's great. Because if it's not, then, then we're just, we're not matching up. Yeah. Um, and the suggestion is, is really kind of worthless. Gotcha. How can people find you? Website? Uh, www.osrphysicaltherapy.com. That's all one word. If you click on that link, you'll be able to find links to all of our uh, clinics. We're valley-wide, all the way from Gilbert up to Scottsdale to Anthem over to Peoria. We have eight locations. Five are inside gym settings and three are freestanding. What gyms are those? There's four inside Mountainside Fitness Chains and then there's one inside LA Fitness. Okay. It has links to all of our therapists and providers and their bios. Of course, access to newsletters. There's ways to access the, the paperwork that we use for new patients. Contact information, you can certainly email me directly from that link as well. Email is MikeBB at OSRPhysicalTherapy.com. And you're also on staff at what, uni what university? Midwestern University. I'm an adjunct faculty member down there. Mostly orthopedics, musculoskeletal pathology, and musculoskeletal one and three. You're busy. I am busy. You're on a but, mission. Uh, but I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, I've been down there eight years. And That's it's, awesome. Uh, no, I really enjoy it. We appreciate your time, Mike. Absolutely. We'll have no. you back. No, thank you for having me. Looking I'd, forward I'd, to I'd it. I'd look forward to it as well. All right, you guys. Have a great day. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.